My brother-in-law, Terry, sent me one of those humorous emails this past week that have a tendency to plug up our inbox. Sometimes I read them, sometimes I don't. But the opening words of his email to me this week caught my attention, and so I read it fully. In his email, it indicates that scientists have now discovered that there are four stages in a human's life. The first stage is you believe in Santa Claus. The second stage is you don't believe in Santa Claus. The third stage of life, you are Santa Claus. (laughs) And the fourth and final stage, you look like Santa Claus. As I sat there in front of my computer screen, I began to muse a bit, wondering, where in these stages am I? And to be honest, I think I've concluded that I'm somewhere between stage three and stage four. You may not look yet like Santa Claus, but may I ask you on this Sunday before Christmas, who do you look like? Your physical characteristics. Who do you look like? My mother tells me that I tend to favor her side of the family. The Hubens. H-O-U-B-E-N. Hubens. They were a mix of Germans and Scotch-Irish. My younger brother, Barry, my only other sibling tends to favor the Crocker side of the family, who were all English and Scottish. I have the physical features of my mom's family. And just to prove my point, I decided that I would dig out one of my family photos. And so I dug out a photo of my great-grandfather, my great-grandfather, Aubrey Hubin. I want your opinion. (laughs) So what do you think? (laughs) Around the eyes. (laughs) Now, I happen to know my great-grandfather, Aubrey. He lived to the ripe old age of 99. I was eight years old when he died. He was indeed, without question, an interesting character, as you can tell by the photo projected before you. Uh, You probably can't make it out there, but he's standing in front of his house, and I'll tell you about that in a moment. But in his left hand, he has a musket, a muzzle loader. In his right hand, or I'm sorry, on his left hip, there is a holster with a pistol in it. On the right-hand hip, there is another pistol that is down through his belt. And then I'm sure you cannot make it out from where you are sitting, but there is also a buoy knife that's hitched in his belt there. Uh, He was indeed a character. Just to prove that, uh, my great-grandfather, Aubrey, and my great-grandmother, Esther, loved each other dearly, but they could not get along. 
And so, because neither of them believed that divorce was a biblical thing, but because they couldn't get along, they resolved their issues by deciding to live separately. And so my great-grandmother lived in the big family dwelling on the upper side of the road, and my great-grandfather, Aubrey, uh, built a little two-room shack below the road. It's on the West Eldred Road in Eldred, Pennsylvania. It's still there today. And um, he lived in that little two-room shack, and they waved at each other across the road. <laughs> and they did that for 45 years. 45 years. It was their secret to marital bliss. They truly loved one another, and we children were the the go-betweens between great-grandma and great-grandpa. My great-grandmother had a cow and chickens, and so she would send us children down to great-grandfather's with a jug of milk and a basket of eggs as her gift to him. And my great-grandfather, now you're understanding more about me, aren't you? My great-grandfather was a, a consummate vegetable gardener. He had a huge vegetable garden, and he would send fresh vegetables back up to my great-grandmother. Again, we were the ambassadors between the two of them. And they nary spoke a word to one another, just waved at each other when they saw each other across the road. I have an interesting family tree. Aubrey is not the only one in the family tree. Uh, there are others that I could bore you with the details about today. Some of the odd uncles and aunts that would come at holiday time. But I'm sure I'm not the only one in this room who has some people in their family tree that maybe you're a wee bit embarrassed of. Some individuals that you kind of groan and moan, knowing that the holidays are fast approaching, that you're going to have to put up with them for several hours and be nice and polite. I'll not ask you to go into the details of that, but it's true of all of us, no matter who we are. That somewhere in our family tree are what we seem to call the black sheep of the family, or at least interesting characters. Well, so it is in God's family tree as well. I'm sure that there's a portion of Scripture that if you're like most people, you jump over rather quickly and pay little attention to. But this morning, I want it to be the focus of our attention, and so I'm going to read it for you, and you'll find it at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 1. And verse 1, Matthew writes his genealogy of Jesus this way. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Sarah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, 
the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. This is the Word of God to us today. Now, I can hear it already. The conversation on the phone after church this morning. Beth, you won't believe it. You just can't believe what he stood up there and read this morning in church. You know that dreadful list of names at the beginning of Matthew? What boredom? What was the point of that? I mean, Beth, you know there's all kinds of wonderful things that he could have preached on on this Sunday before Christmas. There are so many terrific verses in the Bible that he could have brought our attention to. But instead, can you imagine it? He stood up there and read only those names that only he could pronounce. (laughs) And I know full well that if this were a TV show and you had a remote in hand, that you would have zapped me to another channel already. A long time ago. And I probably would have done the same. But friends, this is not TV and this is not your living room and you don't have a remote. So hear me out this morning. Because I believe in this long list, this genealogy, this family portrait, there is some precious gold to be mined. Because in this picture of God's family tree, we have a reminder that God can choose the most ordinary, clumsy, sinful, disobedient, and messed up people that there are. In this portrait of the family of Jesus Christ, His parents and grandparents all of his ancestors, right back to Abraham, we have a picture of the sovereign working of God in His grace to bring even the least of these into His great family and use them and work through them and bless 
the entire course of human history. This whole thing is painted for us for a purpose. And that's why I want us to focus on this particular passage on this fourth Sunday of Advent. Now, in my mind, what God is doing here as He inspires Matthew to write this genealogy of Jesus, He is saying and announcing to His readers, look, before I tell you anything about the birth of Christ, before I tell you about His life, before I tell you about His ministry and His miracles, before I tell you about uh, how He went to the cross uh, to save you and atone for your sins, before I tell you any of those things, God says through the pen of Matthew, I want you to see the kind of family that Jesus comes from. Notice the kind of people, God says, that I choose to do my work through. Now, you probably are wondering, why, you know, if I were writing a novel, why in the world would you start out with a cure for insomnia in your opening words of your novel? It's interesting, though, you need to understand that Matthew was writing to a particularly Jewish audience. And he knew his audience well. And he knew that good Jews loved genealogies. They absolutely ate them up. Now, you have to put yourself back in that day and separate yourself from these postmodern times in which we have DVDs and MP3 players and television and all the rest. They didn't have those forms of entertainment in biblical times. Do you know what people did in biblical times to entertain themselves? They sat around the fire and they told stories to one another. And often as they were telling stories, they would talk about events that were going on in their ancestors' lives. And every now and then, they would get into kind of a, it was kind of a sing-song, where they would start talking and listing the names of all of their ancestors. They would tell each other about what God had done in the lives of their ancestors and how He had brought them to this particular moment. It was an oral culture. And they did not have written records. Uh, So their genealogies uh, were used to establish legal status and financial status and property rights. So it was important to remember who was your father, who was your grandfather, who was your great-grandfather, and on and on. If you wanted to be a priest in Jesus' day, you had to be able to show that you were in the line of descendants that went all the way back to Aaron and the Levitical priests, to be to the tribe of Levi. So it really is not all that surprising that Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, would open his book, his gospel, in this way. The Jews would have loved this. They would have gobbled it up. Because it established the identity of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and that this Messiah, this rabbi with shmiha, with authority, This anointed one was coming right down the right bloodlines and was fully respectable. That he had the right pedigree. And so as you try to to work through those ear-blistering, unpronounceable names in these verses, 
I hope you will take a moment and the next time you read it, you'll not jump over it, but instead you'll take time to really appreciate the kind of folk that are included in God's family tree and that it'll be a reminder to you that if God can use them, He can use you. Now, as we look at it, Uh, Jesus' family portrait here, there are a few names here that that really are quite shocking. At least they'd be a real shock to the Jewish audience of Matthew at the time he was writing. The names that are probably the most shocking in this family portrait are the names of women. Any good Jewish genealogy would not include the names of a woman. Ancient Jewish family trees did not include women because women were persona non grata. Women were regarded as things, as possessions, not as person. In biblical times, a woman was merely the possession of her father or her husband. And a woman's father or husband could do with her as he pleased. He could dispense with her in any way he wanted. In fact, in biblical times, in in, uh, morning prayers, a Jewish man would often, after thanking God for all of his blessings, among those blessings, a Jewish man would thank God that he had not made him a woman. For you see, to be a woman in Jesus' day was something that you did not want to be. But Jesus' family portrait breaks those rules. And he includes in his family portrait a picture of several women. Unprecedented. Previously unheard of. But there's something even more amazing about the inclusion of these women I mean, you'd understand it if they were upstanding, good women. Maybe, perhaps, you could excuse Matthew's liberty here in including the names of these women. But get a load of the characters that he includes. In verse 3, the first woman he lists is the woman named Tamar. Do you know her story? If not, let me just summarize it briefly in a sketch. In Genesis chapter 38, there's a very sordid story about Tamar. Through a series of tragic events, Tamar ends up without any children. She is childless. So Tamar hatches a plot that gets her into a situation where she seduces, listen, she seduces her father-in-law to impregnate her and provide her a son. Incest. Sin. And it was all at Tamar's initiation. It was her doing. Isn't it interesting that this is one of the women that God uses to pave the way for the eventual eventual birth of His Son, Jesus Christ? Think of it. This plotting, adulterous woman is included in God's family tree. And without the inclusion of Tamar, there would be no Christmas. Or the next woman, Rahab in verse 5. Do you know what Rahab did for a living? She was not an administrative assistant or a nurse or a teacher, although she probably taught a few men a few tricks. 
Rahab was a prostitute. She ran a brothel in Jericho. Joshua 2 tells her story and tells us how she helped out some Jewish spies who came to Jericho to prepare for Israel's attack. It was Rahab who protects these spies from the king's posse, and it is Rahab who eventually joins with the people of Israel. But there she is, in God's family tree, immoral, sinful, an alien, a woman. And the Holy Spirit, inspiring Matthew, says, Matthew, you make sure you include Rahab in this family portrait. She belongs there. And then in verse 5, we also read about Ruth. Ruth came from an enemy nation. She was a Moabite. She became the grandmother of King David. Think about it. Ruth was the grandmother of King David. We often refer to Jesus as the son of David, so you could then really call Ruth the grandmother of Jesus. Ruth, an outsider who was viewed with suspicion, who was considered by good Jews because she was a Moabitess to be absolutely worthless. This woman, who most of Jewish society would have been embarrassed of, instead God says, she matters to me, so much so, I'll include her in my family tree. Want more? Go to verse 6 where you read of Solomon, King Solomon, the son of David. And isn't it interesting, he doesn't name her, but we all know who she is. Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. What was her name? Bathsheba. Do you remember her story? How one night in the twilight hours, she was bathing on the rooftop, and David caught a glimpse of her outstanding beauty. And he gazed upon her beauty and lusted after her in his heart. And he plotted and he schemed until he could uh, uh, find a way to get near Bathsheba and plot a way to make her his lover and his wife. The story gets even more complicated because he understands that Bathsheba's husband is one of his military men His name is Uriah, and he's out on the battlefront fighting the battle on behalf of David. And yet, through all the plotting and scheming, the deed is done, and David tries to excuse it away and find a way to cover his sin. But Nathan the prophet comes to David and confronts him about his sin and tells him that he's been disobedient and he has grieved God. And Nathan says to David, David, you are the man. And David, in a spirit of brokenness and repentance, in Psalm 51, prays out to God these words, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your faithfulness and your unfailing love, according to your great transgressions, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away David says, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Bathsheba, a woman whose 
husband was killed, married to David, is part of the family of Jesus. Without Bathsheba, you can kiss Christmas goodbye. People that otherwise would have been rejected, people that others wouldn't have cared a nickel for, despised people, victimized people, marginalized people, messed up people, sinful people, the riffraff. But God says, in my eyes, they are not so. For I can work through a surrendered heart. I can work through an ordinary person. They have value in my eyes. I will enter into their lives and I will make their lives count for something good in the eternal scheme of things. We could carry on down through this list if we took the time. We could talk about Abram. Abram, who turns out to be a real cheat on his wife, Sarai who lies like Pinocchio just to save his neck. We could read about his grandson Jacob, who was slicker than a Las Vegas card shark, who cheated his brother, his father-in-law, and uncle along the way. In fact, his name means one who is a supplanter, a cheater. Then there is Judah in this family portrait, the father-in-law of Tamar. Now, perhaps we're still shaking our heads over what Tamar had done, But you've got to understand that Mr. Judah was no clean cat either. He was supposed to make provisions for a husband for Tamar, but instead of providing her a husband, he set her up on a bunch of one-night stands. Some father Judah was. And in that first group of 14 names, there's a bunch of 'er ne'er-do-wells That God says, but I've changed their lives and I've redeemed them and I bring them into my family. But there's not just one group of 14, there's three groups of 14. The second group is is about the kings. Uh, We'll not go into detail on that, but you could read their stories in 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. It's a story of murder and mayhem and unfaithfulness and idol worship and sacrificing their own children in fertility rites and dealing in occult worship and the mass slaughter of their own people. It's awful, awful stuff. And yet in the second group of 14, you have a picture of people that God says, but I'm bringing, I'm embracing them and bringing them by grace into my family. This is anything but a listing of people who wear halos and play harp. But this is the family of Jesus. And then the third and final group of 14, we don't know anything at all about them. They're virtually nobodies. The Bible doesn't give us any detail about these people, about their stories, their life, their nameless faces that we pass in the mall. Absolutely no connection to them at all. But God in His sovereignty chooses to make them a part of His family tree. They're part of the group that God assembles and works through in order to bring about the gift of His Son at Christmas. The birth of His Son, Jesus, our Savior, the Messiah. 
and take a good look at the portrait of the family of Jesus Christ. And in that portrait, my friends, you will see pictures of some of you there. Because once, like these who are included here in Matthew's genealogy, once we were not a people, once we had not received grace, once we had not received mercy, but God in His love and mercy and grace reached out to an old sinner like me and like you, and He welcomed me into His eternal family, and He says, you're one of mine. You're one of my people. You're one of my children, and I love you with an everlasting love. And the sin and the disobedience and the past that has marred my life has been washed away, white as snow. Martin Luther, in commenting on this passage in the opening words of Matthew, said, God holds before us this mirror of sinners that we may know that God is sent to sinners and from sinners is willing to be born. It's as though God intends for people to hear this genealogy, this long, ear-blistering list of unpronounceable names. And He says, I want you to hear it. I want you to get it. Because Jesus is the kind of person who's not ashamed of sinners, but the kind of person that will include them in His family tree. And I don't know about you, but I find that terribly encouraging. That God could take a nobody like me and put His name on me and say, He's one of mine. He's one of my sons. He's one of my daughters. Now, I know that there are some of you here this morning that are thinking, Rick, it's good for you, but I'm just too messed up. My sin's too dark. God could never use anybody like me. God would never welcome somebody like me, Rick, into His family. Are you kidding? Look at the people that God included in His family. Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, cheating Jacob. Ordinary people, no-name people, clumsy people, sinful people, prostitutes, liars, people who were gripped with lust. And if He can include them in His family, does Jesus not have room in His family for you? My friend, He does. Jesus is looking for ordinary not quite all together, sometimes bumbling, downright sinful people. People who are willing in repentance to bow the knee and say, God, I am a sinner. I've messed up. I, I'd love to be able to do it over. But God, I want to put my life in Your hands. And He will save you. And He'll not only forgive you and give you the gift of eternal life, but He adopts you into His family and you are given His name so that you become a Christian, a follower and disciple of Christ. This genealogy is showing us that Jesus Christ 
has a family tree of people who are broken. People who are in desperate need. But God has showed them grace. The genealogy of Jesus is not a group of perfect people. And it shows us something very, very important. And is the reason that I focus on it this morning. Because the Christianity and the Christian church is not a country club for people who have it all together, but the church is a hospital for sinners like you and like me. I know, I know, we all dress up and we clean up pretty well and we look like we pretty much have it all together on Sunday mornings. But down deep in our hearts, even all cleaned up on Sunday mornings, down deep in our hearts, we know we don't have it all together. Deep down in our hearts, we know that we're all broken. Every last one of us. We all have something in our life that makes us to be ashamed or feel guilty. We all have a past. We all have made horrible mistakes. And we know that if everybody knew about our mistakes in our past, if everybody knew about us, they might not want to associate with us. They might not want us in their family. But I can assure you that Jesus Christ is a God of grace. And He has the grace to put you in His family tree And while everybody else might push you away, God in Jesus Christ opens His arms to you and says, Come unto Me, and I'll give you a brand new heart, and I'll give you a new purpose, and I'll give your life meaning, and I'll set your feet on a new path, and you'll have a new direction in your life. Jesus Christ invites you into His family. No matter what you've done, no matter what kind of past you've had, Jesus Christ stands here today and says, if you will come to Me, I will receive you and I will forgive you of your sins. One of my favorite authors these days is G.K. Chesterton, who says that God paints in many colors, but He never paints so gorgeously as when He paints in white. We have a God who paints in white. He takes the old stain of sin and He washes it away. And there's no sin that, when covered by the blood of Jesus, there's no sin that can stand the cleansing power of Christ's blood. Have you experienced His forgiving grace? Have you made Him the forgiver and the leader of your life? My dear friends, I don't care what condition you're in. I don't care how messed up your life has been. I don't care where you've been or what you've done. We serve a God who is a God of grace and He will wash you as white as snow and He'll give you a brand new heart. And you may be sitting here today and thinking to yourself, boy, I'd like to experience that. I'd like to be free of that load of sin. I'd like to be a part of God's family. My friend, you can. You can. But I warn you, please know that when you join God's family, you'll not be joining a group of people who are perfect. But you'll be joining a family that has former prostitutes and whores 
and thieves and liars and cheaters, tax avoiders, people who are proud, who are controlled by lust. And I'll be one of those people. But that's the kind of people that God came to save. And that's the kind of people that God uses for His sovereign purposes. God welcomes those who seem to be the most down and out. And He puts them into His family. And my friend, you can be a part of that family today if you would choose. So as we close this morning... I want to provide you an opportunity to ask Jesus to be your friend and your forgiver and your guide. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to have your life all cleaned up before you come to Jesus. If you would just open your heart up to Him and invite Him in to be your Savior, your forgiver, your guide, you and God will walk through it together. I know it might seem like a scary step, but don't let it prevent you from moving forward in your decision to open up your heart and life to Jesus. Maybe you've been attending church. Perhaps you've been attending church for a long time. A long, long time. And inside right now you're thinking, I dare not admit that I don't have it together yet because all these people have a different impression of me. They think that I've got it all together. What would they think? I'd be too embarrassed to admit that I messed up. I wouldn't want anybody to know. You know what? The best of us in this room, the very best of us in this room, is nothing more than a sinner saved by the grace of God. And if there's room for me, there's room for you. Would you take that step of faith this morning? I want you to bow your heads and pray with me. My question to you this morning is, will you make room in your life for God? We're going to take just a moment here, and I'd like you, with every head bowed, I'd like you to just take a moment to talk to God. And if you are at a place in your spiritual journey where you'd like to make a decision to open your heart and life up to God, if you decide today that you want to commit your life to Jesus and to make Him your forgiver and your leader, then I want you to stand as a way of physically expressing your decision to open up your heart and life to Jesus. You know, sometimes it's just a good thing to to express your commitment in a tangible way. We're not going to say anything more. Nobody's going to be looking around. This is just you and God moment. If the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart this morning and you need His forgiveness and grace, you need His divine touch on your life, would you just stand right now and say, God, I'm opening up my heart and life to you. We're waiting for you. I see you. What's more important? God sees you. And He knows all about the stuff in your life. 
Thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace that would save a wretch like me. How you would take this stain of my sin and you'd not only forgive it, but you'd cleanse it and wash it as white as the snow. Thank you for the good news, the story of grace. Thank you for not only saving, but Lord, making us something. Placing value on our life, so much so that you invite us into your family and you adopt us and call us by your name. What a joy this is for us to acknowledge today, Lord, that you are not only forgiver, you are not only leader, but you are now Father, and we are your children. We praise you, and we worship you for your amazing grace. And pray that for those who are standing in your presence just now, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit you would seal the decision and the commitment that they are making to you as they open their life up to you and receive your gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Would all of you stand?